to me, it's not a book about British colonialism. It's a book about family. And it's a coming of age story of the sexual coming of age of Frank McCourt and the intellectual coming of age of Frank McCourt and of the family. Hello, welcome to the Book Society Podcast. My guest today is Vinod Buschit. He holds a degree from Wesleyan, another one from NYU, another one from a little outfit called Harvard University. He spent 29 years in the world of economic development, which for those of you listening who might be authors or of an artistic bent, that is what we call a real job. He worked at the World Bank. We'll ask you about that later. He worked at the International Finance Corporation, and he was also a secondary school teacher. He is now an author of a fantastic book called Silent Winds, Dry Seas, which came out last year, 2021, and is released by Penguin Random House. So, Vinod Buschit, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thank you, Lucas. I'm glad to be here and glad to talk about Angela's Ashes and uh, Silent Winds, Dry Seas. Excellent. So, why did you pick this book? I picked this book first because I read it when it came out and I loved it. I didn't know much about Ireland except what I read in British history textbooks. And this gave me a different side of Ireland. And secondly, because the book resonated with me coming from a British colony and from living in circumstances not as precarious as Frank McCourt and his family, but not that far either. So the book resonated with me for those reasons. I read your book and this book back to back, and I did see some similarities. A lot of the horror of Angela's Ashes has to do with the child's perspective. I read this book in high school, I think, but I read it again for this podcast. And I don't think I noticed in high school that it's all written from the perspective of a child and in the voice of a child. It's interesting because the adults do things that are not explained that never bothered me when I read it as a teenager. And now I'm like, oh, so they're just in a different house now. But I guess as a kid, that's just how it seems. But also, I think Frank McCourt's genius in a way is he does sneak in the adult perspective by sort of what I call sly commentary especially when it comes to the Catholic Church. The other reason I liked it was it's a novel about emigration. A lot of the conversation today in the U.S. is about immigration, about the fate of immigrants in the U.S. Angela's Ashes, like Silent Winds Rises, are novels about the factors really that lead people to emigrate from their country. In this case, Frank McCourt from Ireland to the U.S., in my case, from Mauritius to here. It's an immigrant story. Though Frank McCourt was born in the U.S., but he went back in childhood to Ireland. It seemed like he didn't feel at home or was not perceived as being from anywhere that he was. Even when he got back to the U.S., he was an Irish boy, but his whole childhood in Ireland, he was the American kid. You mentioned the Catholic Church and his sly comments about the Catholic Church. Is the Catholic Church the antagonist in this story? Do you think? I think the antagonist in the story is the system. And the system consists of the Catholic Church and the state. Ireland, the father's free, Irish free state, got independent. But then Frank McCourt's family has to deal with the bureaucrats in Dublin, 
with the officials at the dispensary, there's a headmaster who makes a comment about the perpetuation of the British class system by the Irish Free State. So that's one component of the system. The other component is the Catholic Church. There, what you have is Frank McCourt gets rejected by the Catholic Church, first when his parents want him to be an altar boy, second when, at the recommendation of his headmaster, he and his mother go to the Christian Brothers School, and once again, the door is shut. Angela, his mother, actually is more direct about the Catholic Church. She shows a disgust. What Frank McCord does, and I think that's why the book is uplifting and funny in a way, when he deals with the Catholic Church, he criticizes them through ridicule, actually. If you recall, there is this incident where he baptizes this dead Protestant woman, Mrs. Harrington, with a glass of sherry. I mean, to me, that's poking fun at the Catholic Church. Then you have the other one when he goes to the library and reads about the lives of the saints. Frank McCord describes those saints in a way that they are tall tales. All these nuns whose breasts are cut and who managed to survive. So he's poking fun at the Catholic Church and he criticizes them through ridicule. Catholicism is pretty close to a national identity for Irish people. And specifically, I think this is glossed over in the book because I don't know if this is something a child would understand, but her father being from the north, from Ulster County, and her mother being from the south was like an interracial marriage almost. He was a devout Catholic and a revolutionary. And it doesn't really go into his history, but he was of the generation that would have fought in the Irish Revolution, or at least maybe the child of that generation. And so it was really important to him. And Catholicism becomes so important in this context that even though it's ridiculous, you just go straight ahead and believe it. Oh, he is a firm believer in the Catholic Church and in the cause of dying for Ireland. He kept telling Frank McCourt, you have to die for Ireland. So Frank McCourt's dad, Malachi McCourt, every scene he's in pretty much is him getting money that he's supposed to bring to his family and then spending it in a pub. Frank McCourt's memories of his dad are hearing the stories of Cucullin. We did a whole episode about Cucullin. He is a real Irish hero who basically stopped a cattle rustle in the north of Ireland. Interesting, weird story. He's the Irish Hercules, maybe. He comes home singing these songs. Frank can tell how drunk he is by what song he's singing. So, I did a little bit of research into what these songs were, and I'm just going to, for our audience, tell you what they are. So he would sing two songs. He would sing Kevin Barry if he was pretty drunk, and he would sing Roddy McCorley if he was really drunk. These are songs about real Irish people. So Roddy McCorley was the son of a political family whose dad was executed for cattle rustling, but it was, but it was probably politically motivated. Roddy was either a United Irishman or a Catholic defender, and nobody really knows, but if you were to tell Malachi McCourt that he was a United Irishman, he would punch you in the mouth because Roddy McCorley had to be a Catholic defender. He may have been active in the rebellion, we don't really know, but what he did do was he joined a band of outlaws called the Archer's Gang. They were British soldiers of Irish descent who had defected and become basically like Robin Hood. He was caught and hung in his hometown and dismembered before they buried him. So that was Roddy McCorley. That was about 1800. Kevin Barry, to understand the story of Kevin Barry, you have to go back to Terence McSweeney, who was 
born in 1879, died in 1920. He was a playwright and author. He was the mayor of Cork, and he was arrested on sedition charges by the British forces, and he died in prison after 74 days on a hunger strike. And just a month after that, Kevin Barry, an 18-year-old IRA soldier who had attacked a lorry, was caught, apprehended, and hanged. They really were hoping for some amnesty for Kevin Barry because of the situation with Terence McSweeney having died so recently. Apparently the Pope interceded, the U.S. interceded, but the British hanged Kevin Barry anyway. So these are the two men that Frank McCourt sings songs about. These are Irish revolutionary martyrs, and this is his model of what a good man should be, someone who at the age of 18 dies for Ireland. What a fucked up ideology. Dies for the cause, yeah. He's an idealist in that way. And then you have the realist, the driver who takes him to the general post office in Dublin. He comments on the statue of Chicolaine and the bird that is on his shoulder. And he says, it's a sad day for Ireland if a man has to tell whether someone is dead by looking at a bird. (laughs) (laughs) That's how he does his social criticism. He does it through humor. That makes the book actually uplifting. Otherwise, it's a very depressing situation that we have here. It's a world of dirty, shared lavatories, drunkenness, scavenging for coal. It's what one of my friends would call piss-poo poverty. I don't know if that's an Irish thing or if because of Frank McCourt, we think it's an Irish thing, if it's specifically his outlook. All through the book, the British are keeping the Irish down and what they do about it is sing songs and they can kill them, but they can never dampen their spirit. But also the other side of that is that Malachi McCourt, Frank's dad, is just a hopeless alcoholic. It could well be that he drinks out of depression. That's one thing which is not clear. Frank McCourt, how he deals with it, he is not a bitter person. He is resilient. I think Frank McCourt, unlike his dad, has that quality of resilience, which helps him in the end succeed. So this is getting into stuff I want to ask you about your own book, because listeners will find out next week that Vinod's life is not terribly unlike Frank McCourt's life, although a lot less Irish. From your perspective and from the perspective of the book, maybe we can combine these two questions. What is the problem with the British? That question did not come up in the book reviews at the time that the book was issued. Today, one would ask the question about British colonialism. What's interesting about Frank McCall's approach is he doesn't say much about British colonialism. They talk about 800 years of British colonization, the suffering that the Irish went through, but it's through the medium of song. There is not much of a revolutionary spirit that you see in the book. To me, it's not a book about British colonialism. It's a book about family. It's a coming-of-age story of the sexual coming-of-age of of Frank McCourt and the intellectual coming-of-age of Frank McCourt and of the family. Today, it could well be Frank McCord was around and writing the book. Maybe he would take a different approach and make it more of a book dealing with the legacies of British colonialism. The legacy is there, but the tone of the book, it's a book that is non-judgmental. It focuses on really the overcoming of obstacles facing him and his family. It is not a political book. 
maybe that question about what's the matter with the British says more about me than about the book. But I kept reading Ireland was kind of their first. Ireland was really their first colony. It's the one where they probably made the most mistakes and were the most brutal. But you and I are from other British colonies. The unique thing about the United States is in the United States, it was the colonists that rebelled, not the native people or the people that they had imported to do their labor, which makes a big difference, I think. It just reminded me that they really dominated the world for several hundred years and did a lot of damage. Now we just think of them as adorable intellectuals. Well, not in places like India or Africa. They do see the British as colonizers. They do consider British culture, and you know, they're into Shakespeare and Joe and all those writers. But the memory of colonization in Africa and Asia is still there, very much so. I guess it was a different kind of colonization in Africa and Asia than it was here. And it was really more about exploiting natural resources, and that included the native populations. Yikes. The British were happy with you so long as you paid your taxes. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's how the U.S. government is. One of the things I also found really interesting was the book goes into World War II history, and originally the people of Limerick are for Hitler. Because he's fighting against the British. And second, actually, they thank him because the war creates employment for them in the English mines. The English need Irishmen to work in England while they are fighting in Europe and throughout the world. You have all these Irish guys who go and send money from places like Leeds, like Sheffield, Coventry. Coventry is the place where Malachi McCord goes and he makes money, but he drinks it all. Tell me if I missed this. I couldn't quite figure out what happened. So I think that Malachi, the dad, basically just says, I'm going to go to Dublin. And then that's it. And they never see him again. Did I miss something? No, we don't really know what happens to him. And I listened to an interview and he said he saw his father in his old age and they did not communicate much. Yeah. What could you say to someone who treated you like that when you grew up? Treated his mother and the family with utter disregard for any family responsibilities. So this is going to get kind of personal, but have you ever known or been close to someone who had that level of alcoholism? I've been close to many people who are really alcoholics. I grew up in a community of fishermen. Many of those fishermen would, in the weekends, be dead drunk. But I've not seen that level of disregard for the family, no. So I grew up spending summers in Maine, which is the same culture. It's that fisherman culture. Maybe this is the same in Mauritius, but the trajectory of a Maine fisherman is in your teens, you learn how to fish. Maybe you work the line or something, and then maybe you get a boat. And once you're really working, you become a wild man, just a party animal. And then either you die or you find Jesus. I guess I should say you die or you find religion. Interesting you mentioned that. On rereading it, I was surprised at the relative absence of physical violence in the community. It's a very poor community, it's a slum, but I don't recall seeing any scenes where people are at each other fighting. Whereas where I grew up, it was a poor community of fishermen, there was lots of physical violence that I would see in the weekends. The Irish here, as depicted, they are boisterous, but they're not violent. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because you have some really violent stuff in your book. Yeah, <laughs> people get drunk where I come from, you know, they fight each other, you know, blood flows. 
here, the thing. So I think my last question about this book for you is, do you have any idea why it's called Angela's Ashes? Yeah, when I got the book, I thought Angela's Ashes may have something to do with Ash Wednesday. Maybe like uh, penance. But on reading the book, I realized Angela's ashes are the ashes of the chimney. She sits by the chimney. They don't have coal sometimes, but they do need the fire in that house. It is so cold. So Angela's ashes refers to those ashes in the chimney. And she smokes a cigarette by the chimney and the ashes of the cigarette. Frank and his brothers, they have to scavenge for coal on the streets. So coal was for them a precious commodity. That stuck out to me the first time I read it and this time. The image of them going on the road to the dock, trying to find coal that had literally fallen off the dump truck. Yeah. Wow. It's a level of poverty that I don't want to say it doesn't exist in the United States, but I've certainly never encountered it. To use a phrase in the book, it's beyond the beyonds. Yeah, he starts with, there's nothing more miserable than a miserable childhood than a miserable Irish childhood and then a miserable Irish Catholic childhood. I guess I should also say, Vinod, one of the things that stuck out to me reading this is that I went to Catholic school for a year. I was never Catholic. My parents sent me there purely as a punishment. And that nine months of Catholicism scarred me. And so I can't imagine what an entire childhood of Catholicism would do. I mean, the scene in the book where he had sex with this girl for the first time, and then she dies of consumption. And he walks around for a year thinking that he has sent her soul to eternal torment. It's heartfelt. It's heartfelt. But I wonder now whether there's some exaggeration on the part of Frank McCord. Not in this case, but in the case of the dead Protestant woman whom he baptizes with Sherry, that he goes to Mass four times. And then he prays at all the stations of the cross. I just wondered, would you have time in one day to go to four masses? (laughs) Well, you can do a mass in 15 minutes. There's a fast version of a mass. Yeah. So I did a thing. I'm going to tell you something that not many people know about me. So I want to say this was 2007. I decided for no reason that during Lent, I was going to go to mass every day. Even though I'm not Catholic, I just thought... I'm going to try doing this. And this is when I discovered that there's the Sunday mass where you go and it's a couple hours and they do a whole thing, but they do like a lunchtime mass where you can go in and it's 15 minutes. They do the things, they do the smells and bells, they give you the cracker and you're out. You could do four of those in a day, going to mass every day for 40 days. It was kind of a beautiful experience because it's a 2000 year old ritual. So there's something about it that's interesting, but I don't have the associated guilt that goes along with that. There's sort of a severity to the Irish Catholicism that is kind of unique. And I went to John F. Kennedy Catholic High School, so I'm pretty familiar with that severe version of Catholicism. There's just a lot of guilt. It could also be the Catholic Church here is part of the ruling class. It's very clear. And that is sort of one way you keep the working classes down. It's a means of control. I have two sisters who went to Catholic secondary school. So they spent at least five years each. They came out okay, I guess because their Hindu faith was so strong. I mean, they went to Catholic school and they absorbed the Christian values and so on. But I don't see any sign of the scaring that you see in here. Yeah, there is something for me, having been exposed to Catholicism for the first time in ninth grade, there is something just hilarious about it. 
because if you grow up with that, I guess it all makes sense. But if you're learning about it for the first time with a somewhat functioning faculty of reason, it all seems very ridiculous. But to Frank McCord, it was real. And to some of the people that I went to school with, this was reality. And the Virgin Mary was looking at you and Jesus was watching you. And even though this doesn't make any sense, this was their world. And so, yeah, it's very strange. Catholicism is very strange. But you see, in my family, actually, you recall in my novel, the mother, essentially based on my mother, goes to church and prays to St. Anthony. So I grew up with Catholicism around. And if you're brought up as a Hindu, you can absorb all these other faiths because you take Jesus as just another reincarnation of God, just like Ram or Krishna. Just add Jesus to the pantheon. That is a fantastic teaser for next week. So we're going to be back next week talking with Vinod Bhaschit about his amazing book, Silent Winds, Dry Seas. We're also going to ask him about the World Bank. He doesn't know that yet, but I'm very excited for that question. And I'll leave the audience with a question to ponder between now and next Friday, which is the word Mauritius. What does that mean to you? Is it an adjective? Is it a noun? Does anybody know what it is? And it's not Mauritania. It's not Mauritania. Although, you know, I think that might have been a hint. So it's not Mauritania, Mauritius. We're going to talk about Mauritius and other things next week. Okay, have a great week. Bye. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. You have the impression that they are more Catholic than the Italians. The Italians seem to have more fun. (laughs) Yeah, they definitely (laughs) do. 